Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. Is there a game of cricket in the Bible? No. Well, you could say it happened right here. Peter stood up with the 11 and was bold. And all the dads laughed. And I was, I was thinking about bowlers, and so Peter. Peter's got to be, he's Dennis Lilly, right? Dennis Lilly or Jeff Thompson. Just comes charging in, rattles the stumps. Maybe Mitchell Stark, whereas Paul... He's more your kind of Glenn McGrath type. He's just methodical, probing, unrelenting. What do you think? No? Okay. All right, we'll get into it. So we're, we're obviously working our way through the book of Acts and we've called the series To the Ends of the Earth. Why? Because Jesus told his disciples you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Acts is pretty much the story of the birth of the church, like we're going to see today, in particular these two guys, Peter and Paul, leading the growth of the church from Jerusalem, as we'll start read about today, and all the way towards the end of the earth. So, yes, there's a lot of context, and you said... You started the, the passage by kind of giving a little bit of context. There's a lot going on here. This is a crazy time in history. So Jesus has been crucified and resurrected. In Acts 1, we read that Jesus appeared with his followers for about 40 days. And he was talking about the kingdom of God. And over that time, the company, we're now told, the company of, of believers is about 120 And Jesus tells them, stay, stay in Jerusalem, wait for the promise of the Father. They're told that they'll be baptised with the Holy Spirit and they'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then Jesus leaves. He leaves them physically, he's taken up to heaven. And then last week, John took us through the first part of Acts 2. It's the day of Pentecost. That's 50 days after Passover. That's why it's called Pentecost, Pente. So Jesus with, with them for 40 days um, was risen to heaven and then um, there was 10 days and Pentecost. And Pentecost, as John explained, one of the three big Jewish festivals of the year. And um, Jerusalem is just full of Jews from all over the world. They all come back um, to celebrate this feast. And we told the followers... Um, are all together in one house and all of a sudden the sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind fills the house and I love how John explained this last week it's imagine yourself sitting on Bar Beach nice and peaceful and the F-35 fighter jet just screams past you've got no idea it's coming and um, by the time you've heard it it's already gone there's this there's this wind this sound from heaven and then it keeps getting crazier tongues of fire rested on each of them 
And that's a sign that they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they start speaking. And it's like me being able to speak to Karina or Mick being able to speak to Kumbi. Everyone is speaking different languages. And um, because of the sound, this great sound, and it must have been something amazing, literally thousands of people, we know this because at least 3,000 were saved, so thousands of people gathered together. Must have been outside this house. And they hear these Christians speaking. And like I said, it's, they can hear um, Christians speaking about the amazing works of God in their own language. And they're amazed by this because they know somehow that these Christians are Galileans. So John, um, speaking about Pentecost, he, he kind of presented it as, as, as this reversal of what went wrong at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And you know that story when humankind kind of dissolved in a number of different incomprehensible languages and and now at pentecost we kind of see the reversal of that this sort of outbreaking of being transformed into a new world where we read in um revelation 7 where every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb together worshiping god in their own language and John spoke about how God's intent is to reverse the curse of sin and death, to restore his original intent of creation, that it may be a, piece of, a place of blessing and flourishing. And he wants to do this by partnering with people. And so this phase that we're seeing now of his plan is the birth of the church. So what I'm going to take you through, a bit of an explanation of what's just happened, Peter's explanation of it, um, and how... Um, you know, what they need to do to be a part of it. And it kind of gets pretty dense as you're reading the reading. There's a bit of back and forth between the Old and the New Testaments. Hopefully we can kind of, you can track along with me. So I'm going to talk a bit about Peter, then I'm going to step you through the passage, and then I'm going to have a few thoughts about what, what might it mean for us today. So Peter, as I said, stands up and talks um, to the multitude, to the thousands of people. And I know pretty much everyone here, that would send shivers down your spine to have to do that. I, um, I do a fair bit of talking for work. And um, la about a year ago, I was, I was doing a lot of public speaking um, when we are rolling out one of my projects and um, speaking in public forums and, and talking to government and things like that. And there was this one session where I just choked up. I... It was really weird. I've, I've never really had it before. There's, there's times where I can speak really naturally and, and kind of off the cuff. And then there's others when I'm, it feels more formal and um, I, I sit quite closely to the notes. And th this time I was, I was talking to some government types and I just, you know, I, I got short of breath and my voice sounded funny and um, it's, I got through it, but it wasn't fun. And, and so, um, I know that speaking in front of a crowd isn't easy um, for a lot of people. Um, and just to provide, I know I said it earlier, but to, just to really ram home, this is a really crazy time in history. Um, there was this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, and a couple of months ago, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and a whole bunch of people were throwing palm leaves down in front of him. And that's a sign that he's a coming king. And then he died on a cross, dead, just like that. 
and there was darkness over the land for three hours and the, temp the curtain in the temple that separates the Holy of Holies from the place where, um, where men could go was split in two. And in Jerusalem, being pretty much one of the most religious places on earth, that would have been just massive news that this curtain had split in two. And we read of other things in Matthew, you know, the earth shook, there's an earthquake, the rock split, and tombs broke open, and the bodies of many saints were resurrected and went into Jerusalem, appearing to many. I love how that's just a passing comment in Matthew. That's it. <laughs> it is just mental. And then Jesus comes back alive. And he spends 40 days talking to his followers about the kingdom of God. And then he's gone up to heaven. And then 10 days later, Jerusalem's full of people again. It's, a, it's, a, it's Pentecost. So from all over the world. And then the Holy Spirit comes. There's a huge sound. And this group of people start speaking in different languages. It is a crazy time. And I, th I feel like sometimes we just, we can read these passages, we've read them so many times, the kind of the realities of it just wash over us. Um, but that's the environment that, that Peter was speaking into. And I just want to talk a bit, little bit about Peter before we get into the text. We know that he's a bold guy. He was the leader of the disciples. He was, all, you know, really quick to speak, kind of almost impetuous, you know, um, really acting on impulse. You remember when um, Jesus started talking to the disciples about how he would have to die. And, and Peter said, no, that's not going to happen. Uh, you know, that, that's not part of the plan. And, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. That, you know, that is classic Peter. Um, when Jesus was arrested, what did Peter do? He pulled out a sword and cut off someone's ear. And then when um, John and Peter went to the, um, to the empty tomb on Easter, Easter Sunday, um, John kind of waited at the doorway and Peter just rushes in. What's going on? Sees the situation, turns around and scurries home, completely terrified. Um, so we see Peter's boldness and, and really certainty at times. There's that time when Jesus asked his disciples, so who do you think I am? And Peter says, Jesus, you're the Christ. Which is a pretty amazing thing for a Jew to say. But then um, we think about Peter when Jesus was arrested. And we read the little, this little passage in, in Luke 22. And when they had kindled... So um, Jesus is taken into, um, um, taken into arrest and, and Peter kind of follows behind. He, he, wants to, he wants to follow his leader. And um, when they'd kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, it was late at night, and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him, being Jesus. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. He'd lost his nerve. He'd lost his certainty. He wanted to be with Jesus. But he was scared. And now seven weeks later, here's this same Peter speaking to a huge crowd. And this is not a friendly crowd. Why do we know? Well, what does he say about the crowd? 
He says they're devout Jews, they're men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, men of Israel, brothers. But they're also people that know about Jesus. He says in, in verse 22 that these things happened in your midst as you know. These, these people know about what's happened. And he goes even further and he says, these are the people that killed Jesus, that you crucified and killed him. This Jesus whom you crucified. And, you know, these guys are from all over the world. So obviously all of those people weren't um, part of the mob that were crying for Jesus' death. Um, but they're there were obviously some of them who were. It wasn't a friendly crowd. Some of them were mocking the believers, laughing at the gifts of the Spirit, calling them drunk. Then there's the issue of, of the, um, the disciples being Galileans. And you get the impression that um, Galileans, Galilee wasn't a good place to, to come from. You know, there's that passage in John. Nathaniel asked the question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So they didn't seem to have a good reputation amongst the religious elite. And, and they obviously stood out to people. And Peter was about, to be used, was about to use some pretty controversial language. He was about to call Jesus the Lord and Christ. And this is the very title that Jesus was charged with blasphemy. And this is the very language that Stephen, soon after this, would be persecuted and threatened and even martyred for saying these sorts of things. So this was, this was a fraught atmosphere and a, a pretty fraught message. It's very different to kind of sitting in here talking to a, to a friendly crowd. And so you can see the difference between Peter on that night that Jesus was arrested and the Peter today. He was bold, he was logical, he was considered. He stands up, he lifts his voice and addresses them. He says, let it be known, give ear to my words. And he doesn't step back from telling hard truths. He says, this Jesus whom you crucified. And I think this change that we see in Peter is really the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit didn't just come with flames of fire and speaking in tongues and then disappear. He continues on in, his, in, in Jesus' followers. He gives Peter a deep comprehension of the Old Testament scriptures and how they relate to Jesus' life and work. It gives him insight, gives him self-control. It's the same Peter that we see in the Gospels, but he's changed somehow. And this, we should take courage from this. God is at work in our lives just like he did with Peter. He's changing us. It's not like God just accepts our repentance graciously and then leaves us to plod along with our sin and our, the foibles of our personalities. I'm, you know, we all have them. But through the Holy Spirit, this helper that Jesus promised us, he's transforming Peter. And he's transforming us as well. Um, if you want to flick up, James. Um, from 2 Corinthians we read, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the, God's, the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from God who is in the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is helping us to be transformed into, the, into more and more of the likeness of Christ. And Romans, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you'll be able to test and approve God's will, 
So our mind is going to be renewed to understand God's will better. And then do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed. So this, 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 this picture of our mind and our heart being renewed by the Spirit. And what's the outworking of this? How do we see this in other people? How do we see this in ourselves? The Bible calls this the fruit. So the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So this is good news. This is good news and we should reflect on this. We should remember the people that we were before we came to Christ. We were different. Well, hopefully we were. We should reflect on how he's changed our characters, our passions and our personalities. The other thing I want to say um, is um, as Christians, we're called to be ready to explain our faith. Um, 1 Peter 3, always be prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you and do it with gentleness and respect. But it's not just on us. God's there with us as well. Peter talks about times like this in um, a passage where Peter um, had the opportunity to either acknowledge Jesus or not. And he says that in these times, the Holy Spirit will actually teach us what to say, will give us the words in that very hour. Remember, Peter didn't have time to prepare for this sermon. It's not like he sat there like I did for weeks and, you know, kind of craft this message and then put flyers up saying, all right, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have this rally. He's responding to events as they occurred. It's amazing how, when you think about it, how he crafts this message together and obviously nails it 3,000 people were saved so John spoke about last week John spoke about this partnership that God wants us to have with people and this is a great example God is working through us but he needs us to partner with him he empowers us but it involves our action too and you know sometimes we'll never know if our words or the Holy Spirit's words have any effect um, we don't know what's going on in people's hearts. And it's not about being able to rattle off a whole bunch of Bible verses like P Peter did. Possibly the Holy Spirit will give us that insight and knowledge. But when we're thinking about those opportunities, um, let's be expecting the Holy Spirit to give us the words that our listeners need. And let's be praying for those conversations that they're effective. So that's Peter. All right, into the passage. So as Paul so clearly enunciated, Peter starts firstly by refuting the claims of drunkenness. Um, never want one to mint his words, he kind of cuts to the chase. This is not true, this is true. And what he says is what they've actually just seen was prophesied by the prophet Joel. Joel, I'd never actually studied Joel before um, preparing for this um, passage. He's one of the minor prophets. And the context of this passage in Joel, it's only a short book, you can read it tonight if you like, um, is that God's judgment is coming for Israel's sin. There's this day of the Lord, and that, that's, um, that's a term that Jews when God is going to act in some sort of powerful way. 
Um, some of these have already happened and some of them are yet to come. And so Joel talks about some of these days of the Lord that have already occurred. Um, locust swarms, kind of the, recall the, um, the, 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 um, the plagues in Israel, but these locusts were being sent against Israel. And, and then Joel goes on to speak about a future day of the Lord, a time of imminent disaster when God's going to comfort, um, confront, sorry, confront Israel's sin. But, but then the people repent and God responds. And he says in Joel 2.27, and he will bring his divine presence among his people and it will become real and accessible. And, and then we get this awesome passage that um, Peter quotes from Joel that really speaks about one day in the future, God's own spirit, his own personal life presence will not only fill the temple, but it will fill all of his people. And when we see God's spirit coming, and it will transform and empower his people so they can truly love him. And it's, it's, this is an incredible message for the people who are listening to people, Peter, because they were effectively Old Testament people. This is, you know, in the New Testament, but they are Old Testament people. And in the Old Testament, where was God's spirit? It was in the temple. And the spirit didn't permanently dwell on all of um, um, all of the Israelites, it only came on upon people temporarily at different times. Generally, it was for leaders and prophets and priests, like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, and, and the, the Holy Spirit moved them to write or speak. But Peter tells them what they've just seen, what they've just heard, this speaking in tongues, this is part of the fulfilment of this prophecy of Joel, that God's Spirit is being poured out on his people. And the, the devout Jews would have known about this. There's that famous passage in, in Jeremiah 31 that speaks of it. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law upon them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbour and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of these to the greatest, declares the Lord. So the Jews who Peter was speaking to, they were living under the old covenant. This is the covenant between God and Moses that you read about in, in Exodus um, at Mount Sinai when God um, led them out of slavery in Egypt and, and God supplied them with a law. The, the, the old covenant was a law to govern and to kind of shape the people of Israel. It was all about distinguishing the people from the surrounding nations and it was, it was a conditional covenant. So there were blessings and curses depending on whether... Um, the people were obedient or disobedient. And this is where the, the, um, Peter's audience's headspace is at. That's kind of the relationship they had with God. But God's now saying he's doing something new, a new covenant. It's a promise of a coming day when God would bring forgiveness of sin, renewal of their heart, and intimate knowledge of God. And Peter's saying that this is what happened at Pentecost. So Joel talks about this Holy Spirit being poured out. <clears throat> so what does it mean to have the Holy Spirit poured out? I think it means that God will draw near to us and make himself known. And a way to think about that is the difference between seeing a lake in the distance to being immersed in the lake itself. It's the difference between seeing God as a distant, objective 
of, sorry, a distant object of knowledge to being immersed in his presence. And so Joel kind of presents his picture of this worldwide pouring out of the spirit, being soaked and saturated and swept along by the spirit of God. And we are commanded in the New Testament, Paul writes to the Ephesians, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with a different kind of spirit, the Holy Spirit. And then, and then the passage in Joel goes on to say that the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. And while God's desire is that all people would come to know him and receive his spirit, that doesn't mean everyone, irrespective of their inward condition, will receive the spirit. He says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So everyone, irrespective of their outward condition, can receive the Holy Spirit, whether they're sons, whether they're daughters, whether they're male and female, whether they're masters or slaves, whether they're young or old. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. So this promise, it's not for everyone who does good and it's not for everyone full stop. It's for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, everyone who humbly approaches God and calls out to him for mercy. So this is good news. This is good news. Like John spoke about last week, this is God reversing the curse. The blessing that was to come through the nation of Israel is now going out to all the nations. And there's, there's application here for us. As Christians, we're, we're often accused of being arrogant for claiming that our way is the only way. Um, but here in this passage, we see that that's the Holy Spirit's claim. And that's Jesus' claim as well. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We shouldn't be ashamed of this. God himself is claiming it. For being a Christian, it's, it's far from being arrogant. It's effectively us saying, we, we can't save ourselves. We need God. And there's a really strong pull these days to suppress truth or sort of any view that may offend but the New Testament is clear and Jesus is clear that we're to be his witnesses and proclaim him as the truth. So the Holy Spirit's going to come. It's going to come to all flesh. And what's going to happen? Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And so elsewhere in, in Acts and in the New Testament, it seems that only some are called to be prophets. In 1 Corinthians 12, we read, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? So what's to make of this universal prophetic ministry? Well, prophecy is not just telling the future. And here, Peter seems to use prophecy and Joel as sort of an umbrella use of the word. It's about verbalising the great things that we've seen God do. And for what purpose? for the sake of upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So if in the essence prophecy is just God speaking, God making himself known by his word, then the Old Testament expectation that we see in Joel was that in the new covenant, the knowledge of God would be universal amongst believers. We wouldn't need priests to explain it. 
And it wasn't just Joel that spoke of this. In Numbers, we read about Moses says, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them all. And that's the day that Joel is predicting. Wouldn't it be great if all believers were like the believers of that day in Pentecost, proclaiming the works of God? Wouldn't it be great if all of us at Cal's were prophets like this, so saturated and soaked with God, so filled with God in our inner life, that we'd be constantly speaking of him. So Joel's looking to this day when men, women, masters, slaves, young and old are so filled with God that they're going to catch his visions during the day. They're going to dream dreams of him at night and speak continuously of him with their mouths. So then... Peter jumps straight on. This is a fairly amazing fact, this new covenant, this outpouring of the Spirit, but Peter moves straight on because what he wants to convince them of is about Jesus. The Holy Spirit has been poured out, the new covenant is here, and Jesus is Messiah and Lord. And just like the apostles and how long it took the apostles to kind of get with the program that, God, that Jesus was trying to, trying to explain to them, the Jews are going to need some help explaining that as well. So you can see here Peter really kind of stepping them through it. So he tells them this story of Jesus. Men of Israel, hear my words, Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter, which I'm going to try and explain, steps through this logical case. He talks about Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension and his salvation. And I want to call out two things as we read through this section. Firstly, um, so the, the Jews were obviously questioning Jesus. But one thing they wouldn't question is God. So Peter makes sure that it's clear that God's work is throughout. It's God who did the mighty works through Jesus. It, it's Jesus who was crucified, but it was according to God's plan. God raised Jesus to life. God ascended Jesus to his right-hand side. God gave Jesus the Holy Spirit. God made Jesus Lord and Saviour. And what Peter's doing there is he's saying that if you're against Jesus, you're against God. And so for a Jew, that's the last thing they want. They don't want to be against God. So it's a really cool kind of um, argument that, that Peter builds. And secondly, Peter uses the apostles' witness and um, kind of the historicity of events to build his case. Um, he talks about how Jesus was attested to them. They know him. They were witness to it. Um, that it was you who crucified Jesus. That Jesus was in your midst. You yourself know these things. He talks about King David's tomb being right there with us. He talks about how um, this Jesus was risen and that we are all witnesses to it. And for us, that really shows that our testimonies are really powerful um, that story of what God's done in our own lives and a mate of mine was telling me recently how he's, um, his back was completely healed, he was in his mid-twenties and he'd done some serious damage to his back and you know he was sporty and working and he was like what does this mean and then he was completely healed and then most of us heard Nikki's testimony a few weeks ago. And it might be easy for 
some of the people that we know to kind of brush off Old Testament Bible verses, but hearing about real stories of God working in our lives, that's pretty powerful. And so that's what Peter does here. So let's step through it. So first he tells them about Jesus' life and he really grounds it in the facts and historicity. This, this man from Nazareth, he was attested to you. He did mighty works and signs and wonders. He was in our midst. You yourself know. And if this was today, I reckon that's all Peter would need to say. This guy did miracles. Because um, if someone does a miracle today, that is pretty amazing. But in Peter's day... It was different. It was kind of a day when the miraculous and the supernatural, that stuff just happened. It, it might not have been commonplace, but it was accepted as a possibility and a reality. So Jesus was doing signs and wonders. And so we read this passage in Luke 11. You'll know that um, he cast out demons, but that wasn't enough for the Jews. He said, well, you know, he cast out demons by Beelzebub. doesn't mean he's, he's Lord. He might have been a demon. So Peter has to do more to convince them. So he moves on to Jesus' death. Generally a surprising move if you're trying to convince someone about someone's lordship. But look how Peter frames it. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Peter makes clear the providence of God. Men killed him, but it was God's plan all along. And that's a classic kind of paradox of divine predestination and human goodwill, free will, sorry. So even though um, Jesus was put to death by the Jews, they were fulfilling what God had already predetermined. So it's Jesus' life, death, and now we move on to the resurrection. And I imagine that this would have been pretty common knowledge through Jerusalem. So God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And this is the point that the apostles kept coming back again and again and again. Jesus is risen. He's defeated death. They didn't have to prove that it happened. They just had to proclaim it and bear witness to it. Peter goes on to say that it couldn't have happened otherwise, that God raised him up because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It's just an incredible statement. And Paul puts it like this in Corinthians. Death is swallowed up in victory. So Jesus has performed these marvellous works. He's been crucified according to God's plan. He's defeated death. And now he's going to go on to show them how Jesus is both Messiah and Lord by looking back to the scriptures once again. And he references Psalm 16. talks about the Lord, the Messiah, not being abandoned to Hades or death. So Peter's making the case here, and I hope you can track with me, that from Psalm 16, that because Jesus was resurrected, it follows that he's the Christ. The psalm couldn't have been referring to David, which is what some of the, the Jews were thinking, because David was still dead. Look, you can see his tomb, it's just over there. So about the patriarch David, that he had both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. David knew it wasn't referring to himself. But he foresaw the, the resurrection of Christ. And Peter goes on to show that it makes sense that David would think like this because God had promised that one of David's descendants would sit on the throne. Clearly not David himself. So 
Psalm 132, Psalm 89, 2 Samuel, all speak of one of the sons of your body I will set on the throne. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So Peter's argument here is the Old Testament, he's speaking to devout Jews, the Old Testament prophesied the Messiah would be raised from the dead. Jesus has been raised from the dead and therefore it follows that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. And he keeps going. Psalm 110, another psalm of David that talks about ascension. And he explains that when Jesus was resurrected, resurrected, he wasn't just revived to life to live on earth. He's actually ascended up into heaven to be with God. And then he's now at the right hand of God. And this shows that Jesus is Lord. Psalm 110, it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So Peter shows that, Jesus, that David already foresaw that God would exalt the Messiah to his right hand and give him a place of rule and supremacy over every person. Tracking with me? So Jesus was resurrected. We've witnessed it. The scriptures say that the resurrected one is the Christ. So Jesus is the Christ. And this Jesus was ascended to be at the right hand of Father. We were witness to that. So being ascended, the scriptures say that this means he is Lord of all. And being at the right hand of Father, Jesus received the promise of the Holy Spirit, which you've just seen pour out. We've all seen it and heard it. So Peter's crafting this message for the Jews. Now for us, that, you know, that makes perfect sense as, as New Testament Christians. But for unbelieving Jews, this was horrifying because they'd rejected Jesus. And what Peter's explaining to them is by rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting God. And that's why Peter's crafted it this way. So Peter's argument to the Jews is God endorses Jesus, the Messiah, by raising him from the dead. And God endorses Jesus by exalting him all the way to the highest place. And God endorses Jesus by giving him the Holy Spirit, which we've just seen poured out. So what Peter is trying to say is that, yes, you've killed Jesus, but more importantly, you're against God. And what we read here is that that cut them to the heart. And so Peter's sermon ends, or at least, you know, that Luke's telling of it. It says that he, he, he used many other words. And so he's taught them the truth, and now he needs to bring them to repentance. And so we see the effect in verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the apostles, Brother, what shall we do? Just a few things there. When we heard this, they needed to hear this message. And we need to speak it. God can do his work without us, but he generally wants us to work with him. And they were cut to the heart. This was not some sort of superficial joining in with some fawning crowd at a political rally. This was, this was sincere. This was heartfelt. And they say, what shall we do? that critical moment. What do you do? What, what do you say? So Peter, 
It says repent and be baptised, every one of you. Which is, you know, that's not very revolutionary. You've heard all of that through the, well, at least repent through the, the Old Testament. But what he says next is, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, that you too will receive the gift of the Spirit. So to receive forgiveness of sins, you, we need to have an allegiance to Jesus. And these people who killed Jesus are now being told to be baptised in his name, to swear allegiance to him, and that is a tough message. So we mostly, I don't know all of you, probably know what repent means. I think it's only used in religious circles. Um, to work out what repentance means, I'll get you all to stand up and then turn around 180 degrees. That is what repentance is. It is turning around. It literally means to kind of think differently, to reconsider, to change your mind. Um, and it's to feel remorse and regret and desire to get rid of sin. But that physical, that physical description of just turning around 180 degrees. Um, we read in Psalm 51, this is a great example of that kind of remorse that shows us what repentance looks like. Have mercy on me. This is a Psalm of David. Have mercy on me, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop, hide your face from my sins. Create in me a new heart. You can feel that remorse and regret. But it's more than just a change in mental attitude. It's a change in direction. It's a 180 degree change in the direction of your life. It's turning from a life of sin. Acts 14 says, men, while you are doing these things, we also are men of like nature to you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. And Jesus says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So there's repentance and there's baptism. Be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. I won't say much, but just um, we know that baptism isn't essential for salvation. Think of the thief on the cross. Um, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. But if we have the opportunity, Christians are called to baptism. So I encourage you to do that. And with repentance and baptism, we receive two free gifts. The forgiveness of our sins, you're forgiven, your debts are, um, are paid, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. This Spirit of God within us to regenerate us and indwell us and unite us and transform us. And lastly, Peter calls them out from their ways of living. He exhorts them, save yourself from this crooked generation. He's not asking for some sort of private conversion, but a public identification, a public change, a commitment to the Messiah is a commitment to a new community. We needed to change our communities from the old and the corrupt to the new and the one that is being saved. And we read that what was the result? 3,000 were saved. This is an amazing event. It's the birth of the church. The spirit came upon believers and multitudes were saved. And I want to wrap up <clears throat> with two questions. One for you who are believers and one for anyone here that doesn't know Jesus. So what are the two things that Jews value above all else? God. And secondly, the scriptures. <laughs> so what does, what does Peter use to tell them about the truth of Jesus? God and the scriptures. 
But what about the people we're speaking to? What do they value most? Is it God and the scriptures? Probably not. I reckon it's things like justice and science and freedom and peace and reconciliation. We've got lots to say about those things, lots of great things to say. So Peter used the Old Testament to convince the devout Jews. When Paul was in Athens and he's full of these you know, really religious people. They had temples for everything. So Paul says, standing amidst the Aragopolis. Is that how you say it, Dave? <laughs> Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, and I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, I proclaim to you. So what about us? What are we going to say to our friends, our colleagues, our neighbours? And I want to challenge you. Who are you going to start that conversation with this week? And secondly, to anyone that doesn't know Jesus, what shall you do? This Jesus of Nazareth has come according to God's divine plan for salvation and to redeem all of creation. And that includes you. He wants to know you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to pour out his spirit on you. And he's told us how to do that. He says we need to turn from our life of selfishness and sin and turn to living the way God wants us to live. And inwardly, that looks like repentance and faith. And outwardly, that looks like baptism. And he promises that if we do that, he'll forgive our sins and he'll give us his Holy Spirit to indwell us. And he promises that he's prepared a room for every one of us who believe forever in his redeemed creation. He says, let us not lose heart and be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And if this is you, I'd love to chat and pray with you after the service. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how amazing is your word that we have this story of your, your son Jesus and how you've had this plan from the beginning of time that he would come to save us. But he'd do it in a way that was pretty unexpected, that he'd die on a cross. But he had to do that, to take our sin. And that if you've risen him from the, from the grave, and that he's ascended to God's right hand, to your right hand, Lord, and that he's now Lord and Saviour. And we want to proclaim that and we want to witness to that every day of our lives. And to do that, we need your Holy Spirit. And we just ask, Lord, that you would do a work here, Lord, that you would give us a fresh washing of your Holy Spirit. We know that your Holy Spirit is indwelling in us, Lord, but we want more of it. We want it to be poured out 
so we can be transformed more into the image of you, Lord, so that we can be a better witness, a more powerful witness, that we may proclaim your works to our friends, to our colleagues, to our neighbours, that it would be effective, that their hearts would be changed, Lord. And Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as their Lord and Saviour, I'd ask that you are just working in their heart, that they would know the love that you have for them, that they would know the plans that you have for them. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.